All right. Well, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. And we're here tonight in the um, fabulous Studio 1A, the Velvet Lounge. Uh, have you guys figured out why it's called the Velvet Lounge? Well, I'll, 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 tell, I'll tell you all later. I, I, want, I don't want to um, destroy the anticipation and the, the story behind that for, it, it's, it, it should be this sort of secret knowledge that you have to actually come to the studio to find out why it's called the Velvet Lounge. All right. So, um, tonight we've assembled another fabulous studio audience here in the, in the, in the, in the basement. And, um, I should start warning people to wear a sweater or, or a jacket. So, um, cause there's no heat down here. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna heat this place up. Okay, so, um, tonight we're gonna talk, um, it's actually a, a topic I've been thinking about for a long, long, long time. And the, the first threads of this conversation happened when my father and I first had a conversation when I told him that I had left the church. And we'll get to some of my father's arguments here in, in a little bit. But we're gonna talk about epistemology and what, um, Mormons mean when they say they know something. It's, it's scary this time because people don't adjust to this, the cold temperatures and the rain and the ice in the beginning. Okay, so epistemology is really the branch of philosophy that deals with knowing. How do we know things? What do we know? How can we arrive at any sort of knowledge? Um, and, of course, some people define religion as being the domain of faith. So we're going to dig a little bit into knowledge and faith. And I... I purposely use the term epistemology because of the connotation, all these different philosophical theories, which we are not going to go in tonight. But, um, you know, there's a large body of information and philosophical discourse on how we know things. And I guarantee you can meet somebody who is well-versed in these things, who can try to convince you that we don't know anything or we can't know anything. And that's been a long um, sort of thread in philosophy, um, dating back to the Greeks, of course. But, Knowledge, faith, testimony is a key element of what the church rests on. So that's what we want to, um, we want to delve into. So one thing that, um, I was, I was out, I was thinking, I was preparing for this and I went out and I was Googling and I, and I remembered the Book of Mormon musical. And so I want to, I want to play you a clip here from said musical. Um, I think this one I, I gathered here is from the, Tony Awards um, broadcast. You cannot just believe partway. You have to believe in it all. My problem was doubting the Lord's will instead of standing tall. I can't allow myself to have any doubt. It's time to set my worries free. Time to show the world what Elder Price is about and share the power inside of me. All right, that wasn't a very good fade out, but um, uh, the reason I play this clip, um, I think Mormons and ex-Mormons both get the Book of Mormon musical wrong. 
which um, I've seen. Have, you, have any of you seen it yet? Have you flown out and seen it? It's it's worth seeing. But what I would invite you to do is forget that you have anything to do with the church when you watch the musical. Then you'll realize that the musical is really um, about two things. It's about, and I'm off on a tangent, but that's okay. It's really it's really a send up of musicals themselves, and it's also more about this process of believing, this process of faith, and why religion comes about and what sort of problems it solves. Mormonism is just the vessel that it's in. And, and one of the reasons I bring that up here is they fundamentally show that they're not Mormons in this song. First of all, Mormons never say they believe anything, and this is key. Um, most religious people do. They talk about what they believe all the time, but Mormons do not talk about believing things. They talk about knowing things. Um, which, which I think is the key. So Elder Price here is going on about how he believes and, and how, and in the, in, in the, in the musical, they, they, they talk about how they choose to believe these things. And, and that's sort of an outside view of Mormon, Mormonism. That's not how Mormons see it at all themselves. They don't see that process of them choosing to believe and choosing to put faith. Now, I think there's, there's a differentiation here between like, liberal Mormons or New Order Mormons who sort of realize that it's bullshit and then try to like fit it back in the, in the suitcase and they'll give you all sorts of strange um, um, mechanisms. We'll, we'll talk about those in a little bit. But I first want to start out with what a basic knowledge uh, um, that a, a Mormon is talking about. So in Mormonism, you go to church 52 times a year. Two of those times are conference, so you get a passes on those. And usually at Christmas, everybody like Mormons reverse the the paradigm. Like at Christmas, they only just go sing hymns. They don't really have service. So you're really talking about 48 or so times. One-fourth of those is dedicated to this fast and testimony meeting, um, which a lot of missionaries hate. They don't because they might have to take an investigator for the first time on testimony meeting. Um, as you start, there's a scale. You can tell how close you are to leaving the church because when you're really in the core of the church, you love testimony meeting. <laughs> And then as you start creeping out, uh, and the testimony meeting itself starts creeping you out. And it starts getting worse and worse and worse till you reach this tipping point. And then it starts getting very amusing. So, so how far you are on the scale. If you've gone past the point of testimony meeting starting to, starting to tickle your funny bone, then you're probably closer to being out. Um, so today, like I hated testimony meeting when I was a believing member. I would just, I should go just for fun. Um, because for those who don't know, for a testimony meeting, what they do is on the first Sunday, they open the mics, um, sort of in a, in a Quaker kind of tradition. And anybody and anybody, everybody can get up and, um, talk. In the old days, the, the, the deacons used to carry around a mic on a big long cable. I think some old wards still do that, but generally you kind of go up. And the, and the, the cultural pattern is all of the six and seven year olds and four year olds. All the six and seven and four year olds, they'll, they'll run up first and then they will give out their little testimony. And, and if you really want to know what this is about, what I'm, the point that I'm sort of driving to, listen to those guys because they're mimicking what they've heard over and over and over again. The testimony that, 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 um, the, uh, members give, and the word testimony is key because testimony is something you give in court. It's something that you're putting your, your seal on. It's not something that you say, this is a, this is a statement of my faith, an article of faith. This is my testimony. This is my witness. And, and they all have three components. The basic testimony has three components and they're, and they're very key. 
The first one has two interchangeable parts. Somebody will say they either know that Joseph Smith is the prophet or the Book of Mormon is true. Now, those two are interchangeable because if you accept one of those premises, the other one follows necessarily, which is really sinister because it keeps people in this loop. And I know um, this this really worked for me, that if I saw something that made me doubt Joseph Smith, then I'd say, but the Book of Mormon... So that testifies the fact that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And if I saw something in the Book of Mormon that was screwy, I'd say, but it was, it was came out from Joseph Smith. So it keeps you in this logical, um, um, circle, um, that, that, that's really hard to break free from. So that's the first component of the testimony. The second component is that I know the church is true. So I know Joseph Smith is a prophet. I know the church is true. And the third component is I know President Monson or, you know, the king is dead, long live the king, whoever is new will be inserted into that last one. These three things are, are very key. And it's not just by coincidence that these are the basic components because everything else in the church doesn't matter. The church has been boiled down to a matter of obedience and identity. Um, and not identity that I was born a Mormon, but I'm a Mormon because Mormons accept me and I accept Mormons because you can be cast out. You can be excommunicated. You can be thrown out of the community. So, so establishing that foundation, that, that, the, the magical metaphysical beginning with Joseph Smith and the gold plates is, is, is key. Um, because that, that gives this foundation of the restoration, which, which is the whole reason that this church is not just another Protestant church because we've thrown all those guys under the bus. Then you say that the, the church is true, so you've eliminated any any sort of creed statement. That's why I, you know I've argued the church has no creed, and one of the reasons the church has no creed is because it's it's the opposite of saying the church is true. If the church is true, the church is true. There's nothing there's nothing you need more than that. You know, if 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 you say Grandpa's dead and there's his body. You don't, you don't, you don't need to argue any, any further. It's, it's self-evident. There's no, there's no other arguments being made. So, so the church is true gives us cover for everything else. And the last thing that President Monson establishes the authority today. Once you accept those three premises, they're like three legs to a stool. You have the foundation of the church, you have the ark of the church, and then you have the current part of the church. And nothing else can penetrate into that. So your knowledge is a very interesting knowledge because it's not based on any matter of, of fact. It's not based on any, any even matter of opinion. It's just this, this, this out there that the church is true, which really has no meaning. If you think about it, how can a church be true? I, I mean, that's like saying Pepsi is a true soft drink. What, what, what is a true soft drink? It, it has, it has, um, characteristics. It might be sweet. It might be bubbly. It might be brown, like all good things. But it's, there's nothing that says that that in particular makes it a true drink. So if you say the church is true, outside of that mantra that keeps getting repeated over and over and over and over again, somebody coming outside would be like, what the f- are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. You keep saying the church is true, but what does that mean? Does it mean that the corporation is true? Does it mean that the history is true? The culture is true? The, the methodology is true? And for Mormon, the answer is yes. It, 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 it can't, it can't be off of that. It can't be anything else because that knowledge is based on this really something that's not even a, a proposition. And and what's crazy about it is the, the the pressure to conform, because you hear it so often, right, from your your brothers and sisters. I know, and then you fill in the blank, and it's this pattern. It's just a way of speaking. It's almost like if you want to talk in public, 
you first of all have to say these things. And I could never mouth the words, I know, if I didn't know. It just drove me crazy. But the peer group pressure was really, really strong. Absolutely. And, and, and you're right. I said it's, it's done in testimony meeting, but it's encouraged to be done with every single talk. And they'll often add those triplets on that I just said. The church is true. The Book of Mormon is true. The Monson is true. The church is true. Joseph Smith is a prophet. Monson is a prophet today. They'll just tag those on and they get repeated over and over again. And what's really telling about what's going on in people's mind is these children again. Because what do they do? They get up there and say, I know the church is true. I know President Monson. I know Joseph Smith. I love my mom and dad. Right. This is key. This is not by mistake because the child is processing those two statements in exactly the same way. The child is expressing this emotional connection and that, that, that knowledge of what they're saying that Joseph Smith is a prophet. I know the church is true has the exact same mental currency for them as saying that they love eating Cheerios, which some of them will, will say, right? They'll, they'll just start putting in things that they like. These are things they have an affinity for. Um, be, 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 and they don't even understand what they're talking about, right? Um, to say the church is true. I mean, ask them to define what a church is. Ask most members to define what a church is. In, this comes up in conversations with my neighbor who knows our status. And the interesting thing is those kinds of statements exist in a vacuum. There's no roots anywhere else. It's not built on a foundation when even what they're saying should be, meaning he would bring up things to me. I know this, I know this, or I have faith. And I would say back, then you have, if you're saying you have faith in, in the church, you have to have faith in its history, in its statements, in the controversies, in the logical inconsistencies and they skip that and just jump straight to this point floating in the middle of the air. Absolutely. And it's, it's by, it's by design. I mean, there's no designer, but it's, it's evolved that way. And, and that, that's a buttress against anything. And the reason there's three of them is they're very clear. Like if you see that we say the church is true, but somebody says, you know, but the church is doing this stuff that I don't agree with. But look at, look at, when, when President Monson talks, I really feel the spirit. He's a true prophet. And Joseph Smith, well, for heaven's sakes, he found the golden plates. He has to be a, a, a prophet. Therefore, the third one is true. The church must be true because Monson and, and Joseph Smith can't both be prophets if the church isn't true. So any one of these you eliminate singularly. Monson, he's kind of a dick. I don't think he's, um, I don't think he's a true prophet, but I know the church is true. And I know the gospel's true, and Joseph Smith was a prophet, and this is the line of authority, therefore he has to be the prophet. Do you see how this is working? That as long as you only ever attack one of the legs of that stool at a time, because they have no premises. You know, a normal conclusion, a logical conclusion follows from a set of premises. And what they've done here is they've kicked all the premises out. There's no premises that, that really are, are, are used for this. The only thing close is Joseph Smith, but it's very, very circular. As, as people realize once they start questioning whether the church is true, saying, Wait a minute. Um, the the Book of Mormon, the Golden Plates, are evidence that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And whose word do we have to go on? His. It's it's not it's not a good, it's not a good evidence because we we have to assume that he is truthful in the first place. And if you don't give him that, that's why when you watch the Book of Mormon musical, they say some of these things and everybody giggles because they're so ludicrous. Because you have to accept them to be true before they will make any sense as a proof of truth, which is why we start pounding that shit into kids' heads right when they're little, because they are going to accept these premises to be true without any thought whatsoever. So that's the foundation of Mormon knowing. 
And that's why it's, it's, I, I see some liberal Mormons, um, the Mormon left sort of talk about Mormon knowing, I know the church is true. And then they replace it and say, this is just faith. This is the same thing you're seeing in Protestant religions. This, this same long dialogue in the West that's been about faith in religion and, 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 and faith in the church and faith in, it's not at all. And, and I think it's, it's very key to understand that, that, that this, this Mormon based epistemology is very, very different than a than normal faith proposition. Um, because, <laughs> There, I, I, wrote, I can't remember exactly how it says, but there's a little saying that says, "Faith is things that we believe, but we know ain't true." Um, so, the, the, you take these, you take these ideas that that are necessary for your religion that you're kind of excusing from the normal process of 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 knowing. And faith really is sort of a post um, Renaissance sort of concept, right? Because um, you had to, have faith, you didn't ever meet Jesus. Um, at least most people didn't. Um, so. You kind of had to have a little bit of faith, but there was no real tension between what the world viewed or, and when I say the world, I mean you. I mean, when you go to elementary school, like, like you get every, everything you need to deconstruct the church in the fifth grade, right? It's not, it's not like advanced, <laughs> advanced chemistry is required to understand that what the church is saying doesn't jive. You know, you don't, you don't need a, any sort of advanced degree to understand that the book of Abraham is <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get those like um, those little styrofoam balls down at the at the uh, at the planetarium and and figure out that that the uh, book of Abraham's not right. But um, that so it, it doesn't take any special knowledge. Okay, so what's fascinating what I what I said in the beginning about the Book of Mormon musical is belief is actually a taboo word for Mormons. Then this is a really fascinating thing that I don't think gets explored very much. I'm sure there's been some people, but just like the cross is a taboo for, for Mormons. Um, and there's been a lot of people who've, matter of fact, I think we have a podcast that we recorded many years ago on this topic. Um, the, it, it's, it's, it's taboo. And, and Mormon, if you go in, if, if you're a 15 year old girl and you go in and to the Mormon church wearing a cross and do it for a couple weeks, I guarantee you somebody will tell you to stop doing it. Um, and you won't see crosses on any of the modern churches. Of course, um, Nauvoo had them, uh, not Nauvoo, um, um, Kirtland had them on there. Um, uh, so, but, but, but I, I think there's a differentiation between us and, and the standard Protestant world. And I think some of that came from this idea that I, that I, that I flirted with a, a minute ago, this idea of the restoration. And this is, this is the big barrier again to Mormon pluralism. Because a, a lot of the Mormon left are, are applauding and encouraging every step the Mormon church takes towards standard American Protestantism. And you'll see some of these agitators, and that's what they want. Or people like, you know, even brilliant people like Joanna Brooks, when she's talking about Mormonism, she, she's talking about Protestantism. But, but there's this, this undividable, go, un, uncrossable chasm, which is the restoration. Because if, if there is no restoration, there is no necessity for that, 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 that just believing in Mormonism is good enough, the whole system falls apart like a house of cards. And then to my, um, you know, my, my three sort of things, Joseph Smith re- restoration, no longer necessary. It doesn't matter that he's a prophet. The church being true is not a uniquely identifier. And President Monson is just, is just an, another dude. Um, so he's just another religious leader. So, so this whole thing um, hangs on that separation from the Protestant world. 
Yeah, you you were saying how uh, the word belief or believe is almost taboo like a cross. It's a sign of weakness. If someone stands up and says, I believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet, they're almost like looked upon like, oh, that poor person. They haven't said, I know. Yes. Yeah. The expression of faith. You know, I have now you'll, you'll see this term. I have faith in Jesus or I have faith in Christ come out. Um, but, but you're, you're right. It's seen as somebody who hasn't, um, received that experience, much like sort of the Baptists who you have to have this, this, um, conversion, this being born again inside your heart. Um, and, 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 and this is evidence that that's happened. You know, I'm thinking about the Mormon articles of faith, though, that all start with, we believe. And I wonder, you know, did it change somehow over time where believing used to be okay and now you need to know? I think that's a, that's a, a fascinating point. Thanks for bringing it up because it's, it's one of those things that points to evolving Mormon doctrine. And it's one of the reasons I don't, I, although I'm going to quote a scripture here in a minute, I tend not to quote scriptures in here very often because they were written in 1830, right? And the, and the and theology has evolved so much since then that they, um, that they sometimes don't make sense. But th- this, this shows by stark comparison that it's something that's, that's in calcified in the scriptures, much like the, um, lectures on faith, where you can see all sorts of stuff in there that, that we don't believe at all, that, that was written and, and, sh- and showed the time, showed our Protestant roots, but us breaking away from that. And, you know, I'll admit, I don't know when the practice of having these testimony meetings, um, began. Um, I know that up until basically the advent of the radio, um, most of the talks and conference were given extemporaneously. And you can tell because they're rambly and bullshitty and really long. And they don't make, you go get, you go get yourself a copy of the Journal of Discourse and you'll be like, holy shit, this guy spoke for an hour and 17 minutes. <laughs> and he's, I mean, Brigham Young was, he was just all over the map, these talks, you know. That's why apologists can say, oh, you're taking it out of context. There was no context for Brigham Young's talks. He was, they would just get up and talk and talk and talk. Um, not that that's a bad thing to just talk and talk. <laughs> I, I think none of that has any effect, though, on your average Latter-day Saint today, meaning the things that Brigham Young said that were contradictory or controversial or events that happened because they just they, – they're, they're having faith right now in the current position of the church. And if you don't really examine it closely, there's not – other than social issues, they're not really obvious problems. It makes a little more sense than standard Protestantism. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it shows the power of this mind worm that it gets in so deep that, that you could be sitting in testimony meeting and somebody could say, we, I believe, just like the articles of faith say, and you'd be like, what? No, no, you know, you're supposed to know. You, you don't, you don't believe, you know. That uncertainty is, is, you know, it's, it's a sign of weakness and it's been weeded out. Yes. So before we move on to, to where we're going with this next, for you guys in the room, I assume everybody here has at one time or the other got up in church and said they know the church is true. So my question is, what was going through your head? I mean, from, from your perspective, any, any, any of you still go to church? I don't, you know, there's no, there's no faith test to get into the, the velvet lounge here. So what, what, what was, how did you process that when you were doing it? I, I didn't, I wouldn't say I know. I would say I believe and it, and it drove my friends crazy. I, that's what. He never did. No, he never said. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I, 
I almost never in the M- in the MTC. I I broke down or or maybe knew on the mission. I think I did break down and say it once when it, we were going around fifteen to twenty missionaries one by one in a circle, and I might have said, or I did. I think I did say I know, but I immediately kind of felt queasy. Or, <laughs> But this might point to the roots of all your apostasy. If exactly. you didn't, if you didn't buy into, I'm I, I'm only saying that half facetiously, but because this thing can be a powerful buttress, and we'll get to that in, in, in a second. But um, you know, uh, Tal Bachman pointed it out. I, I give him credit for it, which is the trick to leaving the church is you first have to accept the idea that it might not be true. And for most people, once they accept that idea, um then oftentimes the rest of it follows. It, it, and it can sometimes be almost like flash revelation. But this pattern of knowing is a defense against that accepting the church might not be true because there's no doubt to be entertained anywhere in that. Okay, so let's talk about my conversation with my father that, that, that I had hinted to. Um, as, as I tell him that I have lost my faith, that I, that I no longer believe, um, then he starts going through this sort of special witnessing. Well, you were baptized. Didn't you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? And he says, I know I've heard you give testimony and you went out on a mission and you, you presumably told people that there. So you had this knowledge. How can you not have that knowledge now? And the key word is have. The way my father and others I've noticed since then spoke of it. And my father is a brilliant man. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But this is something that one possesses. And what one possesses here is a very special form of knowledge. Because then I, being the smartass I was, started to question the roots of faith as any means of knowing anything. Because that's, that's sort of the problem of faith. So if we go back to knowledge, um, oftentimes when we discuss things like epistemology, um, we can divide the world up uh, to all propositions. A proposition would be a statement that can be either true or false, right? Um, and if it's not so, then we really don't have any way of evaluating it. I'll, I'll, I'll caveat right now and say most of what you hear in conference are not propositions. They specifically talk such that things are non-verifiable. Charity is the pure love of Christ. It means absolutely nothing. Those words have no concrete meaning. And, and if you go through an irregular talk and underline everything that is non-propositional, that's not verifiably the true or false, um, um, murder is a sin. These words are non-propositional. What's murder? Well, that's a subjective, you know, because there's, there's plenty of people that say Nephi lopping off the head of Laban was not murder. So murder is by definition killing that's sinful. So when you say murder is a sin, you're really tautological. And, and a tautology is something that, that we, you're just saying A is equal to A. A is A. You're defining something by its own self. You're, you're very, it's, it's one step beyond circular reasoning. And most of what's said in conference, most of what's said in church is tautological. It's just, just is. They're, they're using their own words and their own definition. Which is, it's, that's what turns religion into just a just giant circle jerk where you're just going round and round and round. And you can't, you can't get out of it. Um, because, because the, all these terms have been defined internally and there's no external verification. Um, so, so when there are propositions, we can then say them that they're either true or false. So what, what oftentimes the paradigm is you say there is this group, there's universe out there of true propositions. 
We'll, we'll talk about truth here in a few minutes, but true propositions. And then there's your beliefs, the things that you believe are true. And those are going to intersect actual truth and your beliefs. And we would call that knowledge. This is a common except. So knowledge would be when you believe something that's actually true. And that's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get at these, these beliefs that, 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 that are true. But you can have beliefs out there that are not true. And beliefs out there, like I was just going on and on about, that are, are neither true nor false. They're just, they just exist. So, so, so that, that is very key because when, when I'm starting to talk to my father and I'm starting to question faith, faith by definition would have to be f- truths that are not propositionally verified true. So let's talk to our old friend Alma. So if we go to the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 32, verse 17 through 21. Yea, there are many who do say, if thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety, then we shall believe. Now I ask, is this faith? Behold, I say unto you, nay. For if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. And now, how much more cursed is he that knoweth the will of God, and doth it not, than he that only believeth, 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 or only hath cause to believe, and fallen into transgression? Now of this thing you must judge, behold, I say unto you, that it is on the one hand, even as it is on the other, and it shall be unto every man according to his work. Classic Book of Mormon throwaway sentence. And now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have hope for things which are not seen, therefore, if ye have hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Now, what's what's interesting here, again, is that Alma seems to be sort of kicking out from underneath us this whole Mormon thing that we just talk, talked about. This is why I say I oftentimes don't use scriptures because they don't necessarily drive what they're saying today. Um, because, because they're, they're criticizing a sign from heaven that this is a straw man. What he's really criticizing is any, any, um, verification of, of, of knowledge, which is what in the rest of the world we, we want. Um, you know, like if a guy comes to your house selling you some pills, you want a sign from heaven. You want something to indicate that the pill actually works. But in this. World that religious people are, are are in, that is some sign of of being cursed and delusional and Adultery. sinful and adulterous. Yeah, wanting to wanting to get your your game on, and um, so so that you have to have this special sort of knowledge. Now, we 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 can't have we can't have real knowledge. Like we can't see the golden plates because that'd be a sign from heaven, and somehow that'd be awful. Like. You can ask Mormons. It's kind of a fun exercise. Just sit back and, and, and keep saying, do go on. Do go on. And I have them explain to you why we can't actually have the golden plates like in the visitor center in, um, in Salt Lake City. Um, and they'll give you this big long answer that if you actually know something, then, um, then you don't have faith. And if you don't have faith, then, then you, um, don't have the opportunity to exercise faith. And then you whip out Alma and then they punch you in the nose. Um, so. Going back to my father. So, so as we talk about faith and the problems of faith, the, the sense, as I, as I told you, belief is something that's true, 
But um, as opposed to a belief that you have in something that's not true, we all have this problem, this kind of solipsist problem of verifying the things that we believe in our head to be true against the outside universe. Because we experience the world through our empirical senses, um, and we presume everybody else does too. And when we hear somebody else talking about their beliefs, say, oh, that's bullshit. We don't have any problem dismissing what everybody else says. But we do have a problem dismissing what we say. We also have a problem of verifying what we say, especially when it's a tenet of faith. So you can either do a full-scale attack on faith and just say, faith is, faith is a virtue. And this is sort of what religious people have done. They, they, they take faith outside of what you have faith in, and they say, just having faith is a virtue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you say, well, what if faith makes you drive planes into bu- or airplanes into buildings? Then they punch you in the nose. But they still want to say faith is this virtue. But Mormons have this special carved out thing because they say there's this light of Christ. The world for Mormons is corrupt and evil and confusing because the natural man is an enemy to God. And I think we talked about this a few weeks ago in the, in the podcast that the natural man can't even get at, at, at knowledge. It can't understand God um, because we're removed from, from, from God. So we can't really understand even what's good. But we have this light of Christ that's given to all men freely in Mormonism. But if you go and you masturbate to pornography too much or you watch too much football on Sunday, you will lose the light of Christ and then you will not be able to discern light from dark. But then Mormons have this special thing that when, when you get baptized as a Mormon, you're not just accepting your membership in the church. You get this gift of the Holy Ghost now, which is even more special, which is, which is a, a special knowledge entering into your head. So when Mormons talk about knowing, what they're oftentimes saying is we have a special class of knowing. So their standard faith and their standard feeling, like I, I might love my wife, and, and that's sort of this thing that comes from my emotion, and I understand that. And I might go to school and learn things, So I, I but, but there's this third class for Mormons of, of knowledge. And I would say that this is something they take as that, that knowledge base that's given to them as children, this this repetitive, we know the church is true, we know the church is true, we know the church is true. But then we say, and I have the light of Christ. On top of that, I have the special gift of the Holy Ghost. So I have a special form of knowledge. So if you, as an ex-Mormon, or you as a Methodist, go to a Mormon and say, well, you believe that your church is true, you feel the Spirit. But when I go to my church, um, which for ex-Mormons is alcohol and and... Coffee. Coffee. Yes, thank you. When I go to my church, um, then I feel the Spirit too. So I know my church is true by the same way you do, meaning I have a feeling inside. Because ultimately when they're talking about knowledge, they're not talking about pulling out an erector set or a chemistry set and figuring out the church is true. They, they will talk about this feeling they have that confirms it. And missionaries will encourage us. They'll say flat out, are you, do you feel something? Yeah, that's the Holy Ghost, man. You need to get baptized. Um, so, so Mormons believe that they have a special gift of knowledge that is, um, sort of on top of their normal emotional endocrine system that sits there that they can use to verify knowledge specifically and differenti- differentiated from the way the rest of the world does. Um, so their feeling is a source of knowledge, but what my dad was telling me was that I had lost connection to this system. And if I had connection to the system, then I would know because the system itself is not only verifying of knowledge, it is a self-verifying system. 
which for those of us who are a bit skeptical, makes the whole system fall apart. Because relying on my feelings to verify that my feelings themselves are true is a huge problem. It's a back, it's a black box problem. It's the, um, I, I think I've given this and I'll probably lose some people, but in, in, in computer science, there's what's the Alan Turing was a early, um, um, philosopher and computer scientist. And he came up with what he called the Turing test. Uh, I don't think he called it that, but that's what it's called now. Um, the idea was at some point computers will become sufficiently advanced that they will have basically consciousness, but that will happen slowly. And it's really hard for us to tell when that happens because we might be biased and say, what's well, a computer. And we might do sort of a no true Scotsman on them and say, well, it doesn't have like, um, fleshy bits. So it therefore doesn't have consciousness. So what, what, what Alan Turing, um, devises test that you would, the observer would be locked in this box or whatever. He couldn't see what was going on and he'd have a terminal and he could type whatever he wanted to the computer. And on the other side could be another human being. Or it could be a computer. Now, either the human being or the computer are allowed to do whatever they want. They can lie. They can cheat. They can do it. They can respond however they want. But it's the, it's the, it's the, um, it's the responsibility of the individual to perform the test to decide if the other being, the other entity on the other side of that box is a conscious being or not. Now, there's been a probabilistic component, um, added to this later where, you know, they, they have to say there's, there's, actually a million monkeys in the box who decide whether or not the, the, the computer on the other side is conscious or not. But the, the issue is the individual has this terminal that masks from the individual doing the test what is on the other side. And the individual can only see what's coming into their box. So we have this, this same problem, and I call this the spiritual Turing test, which is you have your emotions that you, that you have inside you. And you cannot tell because you're in the box, whether those emotions are coming from an external metaphysical supernatural source, as, as Mormons and others would believe, or they're coming from yourself. Because you're inside the box. You can't look out the box and see if there's a wire out, out there. So this is where my father would respond and say, no, I especially know because that feeling tells me that it's coming from outside the box. And my response would be, but the system can lie. The system itself, the box, just like in my Turing test, either the computer or the individual can misrepresent themselves to throw, to throw it off. And what, what's really nefarious here is you have organizations like the church who want to use your emotion as validation that they are correct. Because you could say that they have motivation monetarily or otherwise to make you feel that sort of, that sort of emotional response and believe that, that the universe out there is telling you that you need to obey your bishop and serve in the nursery. Uh, cause that, that's a, that's a useful thing for the, for the church. But as an individual, I would say that you can't get outside that box. You can't ever verify that that emotion comes from anything but yourself. And once you realize that problem, if you're naturally skeptically inclined, you would then say, I'm going to assume that everything's coming from me because that's the parsimonious or that's the easiest response. That That's exactly how it was for me when I would say fervent prayers to try to get the testimony that all my friends had. I could not distinguish 
that's just something I'd get answers. I would think they were answers, but then I would like parse it out and say, that's just coming from my own head. That's just something that I want to be true. And so this thing that you're that you're, that you're going over about, you know, how can you tell, how you can distinguish if it's something from yourself or, or from an, an outside source like God is really, really key. And I think some people just jump that gap really quick and say, ah, that feeling I just got, that answer that just popped into my head, that must have come from somewhere else. I couldn't have come up with that. And I could never jump that gap. That, that, was, that, that would distinguish me from my friends and would drive my friends crazy because I would, I would hang on to, how do you know that? Yeah, and this is why prayer works for most people. If you if if you're a rational person, prayer actually is a great tool if you can buy into it because because what you're doing is you're quieting your mind and you're sort of le- listening to your emotions and you will have intellect does not operate in a vacuum. You will have emotional response to certain things. So if if you if you have been thinking about something, you quiet your mind, allow yourself to to think freely think freely, you'll probably come at sort of this emotional response, which will generally be a good conclusion. But if you're nuts, like the Lafferty's, then this system backfires in a tremendously awful way. One thing that facilitates that, and this has come up in conversation as well, is Mormonism explicitly believes or proclaims an interventionist God, that you have the priesthood, you can bless people. But the way that, that this God intervenes is... That if a, a murderer or criminals are operating or terrorists are operating around the world, he frowns disapprovingly. And if a doctor is operating on my brain tumor, he's just looking over the shoulder saying to the doctor, add a boy mm-hmm. and not, and not actually giving him some new insider technology that doesn't exist and creating an actual miracle. And that's how, that's how so many members of my family and people I come in contact with can say that that God is actually there doing something, it's just him nodding or shaking his head. Well, and, and of course, you're, you're absolutely right. And they, they always insert the God, the God of the gaps, you know, which I'm, I'm going to distort this statement because the God of the gaps is always God is wherever we don't have knowledge. God is wherever systems are confused. I think there's a talk by Nielsen, um, a member of the 12, who's a heart surgeon. And he talked about there were times when he didn't feel like he was consciously guiding himself and he, he would, he would attribute this to this person that he was operating on being a chosen vessel of the Lord and that, that God was metaphysically operating through him. He, he would give this credit. Everybody who's ever played baseball should not have a counter curse to this, uh, to this spell because there's so many things we have to do by muscle memory and without conscious intervention and what a good heart surgeon should have is that sort of thing. If he's consciously thinking about every muscle move he's making, we got a problem because this guy should know what he's doing very, very well. Just like somebody hitting a 90 mile, um, 90 mile per hour fastball doesn't have any time to think about it. It has to be through this, this process that's, that's unconscious to us. And that's easy to subscribe to some sort of metaphysical force out there. 
all of prayer. So what you want in the church, you want your golden contacts. You want people who already have good heads on their shoulders. You want people to go to BYU and go to graduate school and Ivy League schools who are already good thinkers. You want to populate your Quorum of the Twelve Apostles with accountants and lawyers and people who have been, you know, the CEO of Mars Company and those sort of things because they're going to make good choices because they've been doing that for the last 30 years. And if they think that it's God guiding them, all the better. So we have the, these components that we've laid out. We, we have this special knowledge that's, that's pounded into you from when, when you're little. You have this exception where you can look at your own self. And even though you know these are emotional responses, you can say, this is different than my regular emotional response. And what's funny is a lot of people leave the church, have this dawning moment, say, I would feel exactly the same thing when I was listening to Pink Floyd <laughs> as when I was feeling the spirit in the temple. And it was the exact same feeling, but they were taught to contextualize it in such a way that they would separate that. But it was only after they said, oh, shit, that was the exact same thing is my response. Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to mention another reason why it's beneficial to the church for them to get us to say we know uh, at an early age. And that is that our, our pride is going to keep us from ever saying anything differently. Uh, because we don't like to admit as human beings that we're wrong. That's a hard thing to do. And so uh, the sooner they can get us to say we know, then, you know, we don't want to uh, have everyone coming to us. Well, you, I've heard you say you know. How can you go back on what you said? So that, that keeps keeps us in the loop. Right. Yeah, I've, I've used to, to illustrate the point you're making for the problem of, of uh, corporate attorneys, which is there's lots and lots of corporations in the United States Many, many, many millions of uh, corporate attorneys. Millions? At least hundreds of thousands. Um, and how common is it? And we know companies are doing awful things all the time. And it's usually in the past. Oh, we were, that was wrong. 30 years ago, we were wrong, but now we're right. How often does a corporate attorney not share the corporate values? It's actually pretty rare. Like the, that a whistleblower attorney or somebody comes and says, I really didn't. I mean, if you think about the number of people, the, my, my point is, is that we tend to just um, take the values of those who are around us and internalize them, and then we do not want to admit that we were wrong. We didn't. We never want to admit that we were gullible, that we actually went off the, the deep end on this, because that hurts our pride. We'll find all sorts of excuse. Well, I was doing what, what I was told. I was just, I was a low level attorney. I was, you know, I was following orders. I mean, in that, in that, in, 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 in the Nuremberg trials in the, from Vietnam, it was always, I'm just, I was just following orders. I was just doing what I was told. Okay. So we're, we don't, it's not, it's not like the dark ages any longer. And we are surrounded by science. And let's be clear, let's level set. Science is the application of mathematics and logic. Um, I, 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 this is a pet peeve of mine because even people who are real advocates for science talk about science as if it's a body of knowledge. Science is not a body of knowledge. Science is a methodology. Science is a methodology at arriving at truth. Remember, I was talking about truth and belief and knowledge. So, so science is how we arrive at that. And it has this basis of logic and mathematics. And I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, but I think that'll serve our purposes. So what's happened now is faith for a long time operated in this separate sphere from applied science. Cause applied science was like shooting, um, 
you know, launching your catapult at the enemy walls. Like faith was over here. Science was over here. But of course, um, you know, since the enlightenment and before that, I mean, the Greeks had it and the, the Chinese and the, you know, everybody. Oh, so, um, so as science more and more cuts into this territory of belief, people who are educated today have a bigger and bigger problem of preserving this knowledge-based faith in the church while operating in the world. So um, I bring up that science is, is a method because there, there's you'll, you'll see two two characteristics, one among, um, among Christians and Mormons to, um, to solve this problem. The first one are science bashers. And the thing about science bashers is they're usually uneducated. And, and so when you see a science basher, they usually don't know what the f- they're talking about. Um, and they're really kind of comical that way because, um, you know, they, they don't understand, you know, they'll, they'll take things like theorem, you know, well, the reason they call it germ theory is that germs are a theory, right? Um, and there's very few even like, even Ray Comfort and those guys don't like deny the existence of germs. Um, there's much more evidence for human evolution than there is for germ theory. I would, I would, um, postulate, but those two things are very well established and theory has a very scientific meaning, but they will play on the common meaning of this to sort of, Say, okay, well, we have our system of knowing here, and you have your system of knowing over there, and they're in two separate spheres. They're not. They're not at all. Mathematics and logic can be applied to anything in the realm of faith completely. Faith is itself a, a verifiable proposition. You know, are, the, are these things true? Um, it, um, is there a God? That's a, that's a proposition that can, that can be validated as true or false. We may not have the mechanism to do it now, um, but it, it is completely a, a, a verifiable thing and thus in the realm of science. So these guys aren't real interesting. They, they make a lot of noise, but anybody who's like been to college sort of doesn't pay any attention to the science bashers. But what, what, what I noticed, and I've, I've said before that before my career in podcasting, I would spend my time online on the boards arguing with apologists. Um, and I quit because they would turn everything into epistemology. And I'll, now that we've kind of laid the founder, I'll explain what I mean. Um, if you point out that golden plates would be too f***ing heavy to carry around, they can't argue that point. You know, they can do the mathematics as well as anybody else can. They can see that there would be, what, 350 pounds or something like that, that, that gold is really heavy. And if you go down to Utah Lighthouse Ministries down by the um, – the, the baseball stadium, she's got a lead version, which you should probably wear. You're not supposed to like handle lead, are you? I don't, I don't know. I think she's got a lead version. You lift up. It's not as heavy as gold, but that thing is, that thing is heavy. I mean, you pick it up and it, it, it weighs a lot. So, so if you go to apologists and you start cutting things down, you start dissecting them into propositions, into verifiable scientific things, it just most, the whole fabric of the church really does not have very good scientific, um, um, basis. So what they will do is rather than attack the methodology of science or the findings of science, they will attack the methodology of even knowing. They will start going off on this postmodern um, attack of how do we really know anything and what does knowledge even mean? So I, I think this, this is worth mentioning because the apologists, the educated people in the church who are the defenders of the church, 
are really doing a, some, a sleight of hand and they're doing an entirely separate system than what the little kids are trained to do. Because what we're, what we've, we've said here is little kids are trained from the time they're little to suggest that the church is true, that they have a special knowledge. Special knowledge comes from their baptism, that their knowledge is unique and different from what everybody else has. So even though it might appear that I'm believing the church because of my emotions, that's just what everybody else does. Mine's a special basis. And I really don't have belief. I really don't have faith. I have this special thing that's been, that's been bestowed upon me. But what the apologists do is they switch that on its head and they say, we really don't know anything. So our um, arrival at knowledge is just as good as your arrival at knowledge because no one can really know anything anyway. But what, where it's really maddening about that is they only apply that philosophy to conclusions that disagree with what they're saying. So if you go read through apologetic material on like Mesoamerican archaeology, they're full on science. I mean, it's bunk science, but they're, they're, they're not saying, well, we could go dig for, um, what are the cities now? We could go dig for Zarahemla, but what does dig even mean? I mean, but that's the way they, that's the way they approach, um, um, criticisms to the church. They start kicking out even saying, well, what, what does it even mean to, um, what does God mean? You know, they'll, they'll just start throwing smoke and sand in everybody's eyes. But then when they go back home to their um, um, hobbit hovels, they will um, they will go back to their regular knowledge-based concrete definition. And if the one thing that everyone knows is in the church is Mormonism is concrete for the people in the pews. It is not an abstraction. It is not a metaphor. It is very – the plates are real. Angels are real. Prophets are real. This is not metaphoric at all. I think they do use science. I think they do use math, but I think they <clears throat> apply it backwards, meaning the answer is 32. And if they, if someone points out horses in America that would make the answer 34, well, then they'll nip tuck here and they'll pad a little there and say that the golden plates are actually a golden alloy or golden in appearance. Right. Or Joseph Smith was also super strong. Did you see him like Russell? Yeah. He had nuts on him like a bear. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. That's why. Yeah. That's why he had so many wives. I mean, you want that <laughs> flow into the church. No, no. I mean, they, it's backwards math. You're, you're, you're right, and I think there's a couple of key things there. Um, you're, you're absolutely right because once knowledge is established, once the church is true, then you can go. Because some people say, well, how how do all these Mormons go to BYU? And BYU has a high placement in Ivy League graduate school, and BYU students are smart. Like the, the, this is a top performing school. These guys are not coming out stupid. And you say, well, how is this? How do we reconcile this, this crazy religion that's on par with Lord Zenu and the, what, what, and, 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 and these guys who understand science and scientific theory very well? It's exactly what you're saying is, is the church is true a priori. And so, so like I've said before, there's a whole bunch of evidence out there we haven't discovered that's going to establish the church is true. And anything that shows the church is not true has, has epistemological problems with it. Science can be wrong. Science changes all the time. Or there's going to be another theory that will circumscribe truth into one great whole. And it's just our mortal understanding that doesn't get it. And once we get that rest, the rest of the story, then it'll all come together. But, but you're right. These, and, and what's, what's maddening to me is they will use those, those arguments in one instance, um, to say it's, it's not gold, it's an alloy. But in another instance, they'll use it as gold. And what I would say is I will take the apologists much more seriously if they can construct a, a regular 
theory of knowledge, a regular theory of Mormonism. Because if you go through their journals, you will notice this haphazard application of, of science um, that, that's contradictory throughout this series of articles because they're just taking this minuscule focus. And it, and it only comes clear when you step back. And that's that tall Bachman process of stepping back and say, well, maybe, maybe the church is not true. And then you start saying, well, these pieces don't all fit together. And the way I, I reconcile this, I only looked at one at a time. Yeah, I was going to say that, you, you know, this idea of really smart people coming out of BYU. And I worked with a lot of really smart people at Novell, for instance. And it was really strange for me that this intellect would be applied in one compartment of their life, but a whole other compartment, it was not applied. And and I think of that uh, phrase that often comes after, I know the church is true, beyond the shadow of a doubt. It's It's kind of like they've walled off this area where we don't apply our normal intellect and, and, and like doubt. We, we don't because it's a different kind of knowledge. Like you were referring to either, uh, earlier. It's like a, this, this specialized kind of notion of knowledge has come through other channels and it has nothing to do. You, you don't apply logic and intellect in this space. Yeah. I think if you talk to your average Mormon, if, if you start to inter- or ask them, to look at something with a degree of skepticism where they're exercising the slightest degree of uncertainty, they immediately become agitated or angry because they've been programmed to avoid that like a hot stove. Yes. And so you talking to your dad, I'm certain you're his son, he loves you, but I guarantee that he starts to get his hackles up and, and, you know, you're treading in dangerous waters, young man. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's like, yeah, so as a parting gift, here's a, um, whether you're buying vitamins or timeshares or you're listening to religious discourse, here, here's, a, here's a good rule of thumb. Things that are self-evident or things that have been proven are just assumed. Like if you go to an advanced physics class, they don't testify to the truthfulness of the test physics you learned in the first year. It's it's not only just generally accepted, it is shown is demonstrated over and over again in the advanced material. When you work on computers, the guys don't say, and I just before I start, I want you to I want you to know that I know this computer runs on binary. It's just <laughs> understood, right? So when people are insisting things that otherwise would go without saying, Pay attention. When somebody keeps telling you that they're honest, pay attention to it. When somebody, whatever they're repeating to you that normally goes without saying. So it was a, it was a realization for me and it was, it was rather far into my losing faith when I realized the only proof you need that the church is not true is they keep saying it all the time. (laughs) That if it was, if it was actually true, no one would say it. People don't say things. I know the garbage man comes on Wednesdays. They just don't do that. That's not how the human mind works. This is the smoking gun. This that they just keep saying that over and over again. Because if it was true, there would be no need to say it. I don't. I don't know. There's anything else to say. Anybody have any any parting comments? All right. And I just I made sure that no Mormon will actually listen to me because I said in the middle of that. Go ahead. 
what are your thoughts on how this compares to other Christian traditions or other religion, faith traditions in general? How how unique is Mormonism when it comes to? Well, I, I, I that's a great question. Yeah, the uniqueness of Mormonism. I I think fundamentalist churches have this problem. Um, the, the, a, a lot of religions are, are more cultural, and then you, you know if, if you're if you're a, a liberal Protestant, and it turns out that the Adam and Eve story actually isn't true, if that just happens to be discovered, um, then your 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 faith is not really impacted. But like if you're um, you know a Pentecostal who has to rely on this convertive experience, this I'm being born again that you, you, you have this sort of concrete experience, then the religion has more problems. And that's what Mormonism has because it, it's this, it's this concrete tie into once again, the restoration. And, and once you start questioning those things that bring the restoration into focus, then the whole reason that Mormonism exists at all starts to, to, to fall away. So I think Mormonism has that problem. And this is the problem in things like the ordained women movement and movements to give equal rights to gays. Um, you know, why on the one side you can see these as, as great human rights things, but on the other side, they really just start eroding away at the whole basis of Mormonism and they would just send it down the slippery slope that they couldn't recover from. And I, and apologies to, to my friends in the, in the reorganized church, but I think this is the problem the reorganized church has. And this is why they're bleeding membership and closing up buildings because they have this problem of identity. Once they, they, they walked away from that, it's like, what, what? Why don't I just go to the United Methodist Church, you know? All right. Well, you've wasted another great hour here. Um, um, so, uh, as always, the discussion will continue over at the website, and you can find us um, on Facebook, the Mormon Expression Podcast Community. Um, and um, stay tuned for many wonderful, great things. Thank you all for coming tonight. You've made it delightful. And uh, have a great evening. Oh